At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Devin, for leading us this morning. My name is Stephen Zarelli. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodside. So grateful to have this time in the Word of God with all of you. Pastor Chris is spending the morning down into in our uh, Detroit campus, so make sure you lift him up in prayer if you would. And if you have a Bible, please make your way to Lamentations chapter 3 as we continue our series this morning. Near the end of his life, King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and in chapter 7, verse 8, he said these words. He said, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And as we come to Lamentations chapter 3, what we'll notice in these first many verses is that it begins and it sounds very ugly. Very, very ugly. But the beauty we'll discover at the lowest point of the valley, it is worth the hike. It is worth the journey. It is worth the trip. So I hope this morning, as we trudge through truly what are exhausting and difficult and terrible words for us to process, we will come to a place where truly the prophet, the poem, uh, the poet will turn. And when it turns, the payoff is amazing. So I'm going to begin reading the first six verses and we'll dive in together. This is what Lamentations chapter 3 verse 1 says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. A few weeks ago, a pastor who was speaking with our preaching team uh, shared a very difficult and personal story from his marriage, married life. When his wife was pregnant with their first child, she uh, had reached 39 weeks and the baby's heart stopped and they lost the child. When they got pregnant the second time, they went in for a check-in visit, and the doctor said, I know all of your pregnancy signs and hormones and numbers, they all look good, but there's no baby there. Devastated by this news, and having walked that experience for many, many months together when they prayed, part of her, in part of her prayer, she said this, she said, God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in such a place where you came to God in your frustration and in the midst of that valley and you said, I, I, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. That kind of emotion is exactly why we are addressing this particular book in this series called Good Morning, Taking Our Sorrows to the Savior. And maybe your story sounds a lot like their story, maybe not, but we all have our stories and in these moments, we might say, or at least feel, I'm at the end of my rope. I've got nothing left to give. I don't have any strength to move forward. And do you know where that phrase came from? I'm at the end of my rope. It's a farming expression. 
It's when a farmer would tie up an animal to a stake or to a fence and the rope would only let out so far and at the end of their rope, they would come to the end of their resources. They couldn't graze anymore. And so they've run out of sustenance. They've run out of resources. They've run out of what they need. And being at the end of your rope means that you've reached the limit of your resources. You are spent. It is when we find ourselves at the lowest point of the valley, at the greatest depth below sea level. And in that place, we either run run from God in our pain or choose to run to God with our pain. We either run from him in our pain or run to him with our pain. Where are you running today? Which way are you headed? One direction will lead you into greater despair and torment. The other direction will lead you into gracious hope and triumph. And it might sound like a paradox, but what we need to embrace today is that lament allows us to hope. Lament actually allows us to hope. We should be so grateful this book is contained within God's holy and perfect word because we all know that life can be excruciatingly painful. Life isn't like this, uh, the theme song of the Lego movie back in 2014. It's one of my family's favorites. Do you remember what the theme song was? Everything is awesome. But we all know, certainly in 2021, that everything is not always awesome. It just isn't. It's very difficult, and when the brokenness of this world knocks the wind right out of us, and we can't catch our breath because it has, and it does, and it will again, God invites us to bring all of our complaints, and all of our anger, and all of our pessimism, and all of our doubts, he invites us to bring them to him. That's why I'm so grateful for this book that we have, that we've been walking through now for the last two weeks, this being our third Because in this exchange with the Lord, we bring our hurts, and he offers us hope. And that's ultimately what we need, and I think many of you, maybe that you, as you walked in today, that's exactly where you are. Maybe some of you are willing to say and admit that right now, life for you is not awesome. Life for you is difficult, it's hard, you're in the midst of a valley, and you don't know how deep it goes. Maybe some of you reflect back on a time, or maybe you're dreading the next time. But culturally, as we've shared the last few weeks, we don't process grief very well. It's not consistent with the American dream. The message is that we can build an everything is awesome life. The message is that there is no end to the rope because there is no rope according to the American dream. We have all the resources and everything we need in and of ourselves. So just dig deep. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, chase after it, go after those dreams, and you will find all the resources because you are limitless within yourself. So the culture fights grief, ignores it, hides it, but all of these strategies, none of those responses actually heal it. And I think there's a lot of us that need healing. So how do we move from the land of lament and end up in this city of hope. It's not a quick fix. It's not a short walk. It might be a lifelong journey, in fact. But the end of a thing is truly better than its beginning. 
It starts here. We have to acknowledge our affliction. And this is the part where as we walk through this text, it is hard to swallow. It's hard to hear. And yet, trust me, as you follow along, just allow your soul to go with the poet to these depths. Allow yourself to go with him on this journey. Because when he turns and when we turn, it's amazing. And it's incredible what can happen in us. Let's remember the context. These piercing words come from the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction in 586 as the Babylonians destroyed and wiped out and besieged Jerusalem. They sent the survivors to Judah in exile. And so the people that are there, they've lost everything. The Israelites, they've lost everything. They've lost loved ones and their homes and their temple. They've lost their independence. And Jeremiah, who I tend to think wrote this, was not confused about why this has all happened. He knows why it happened. He knows that God sent Babylon to punish Judah for her rebellion and her idolatry. But even though he knows the why behind the pain, he doesn't hide the pain. He still honestly takes the pain to the one who inflicted the pain and allowed it to happen. These first verses are absolutely horrifying, if we're honest. Jeremiah describes God here as a vicious shepherd and then a cruel jailer and then a terrifying predator and eventually as a deadly hunter. Let's look at the first six again. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. This is the vicious shepherd. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Now, maybe as you hear about God as shepherd, your mind goes to a different place of scripture. About 400 years prior to this, the King David, the prophet David, the servant David, wrote Psalm 23. We know the words well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This psalm describes the covenant promise-keeping relationship between God, the shepherd, and his people, the sheep. And it's one filled with peace and provision and protection. But what happens when the shepherd gets angry? Verse 1 says that the sheep will feel the rod of his wrath here in Lamentations chapter 3. In Psalm 23, David says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, but not here. The shepherd's rod, which was traditionally used to try to keep predator animals away, here it's used against his own flock. Verse 2 says that instead of the shepherd leading the flock to sunshine, he has driven them into darkness without any light. The shepherd's caring and gentle hands in verse 3 have turned against the sheep again and again. Shepherds would care for the injured in their flocks, but in verse 4 it says, He has broken my bones. And when David talks about the fearlessness that we experience with God's presence being around us and within us and for us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, here in verses 5 and 6, it talks about how the shepherd surrounds the sheep with bitterness and tribulation and darkness. There is absolutely no way of softening these words. It's one thing not to have a protector. It's another thing altogether when the protector becomes the aggressor. 
Next, he describes God as a cruel jailer. Look at verse 7. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He feels enclosed. He feels imprisoned. And he's crying out to God saying, where are you? Why aren't you responding to my prayer? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you know what I feel? He cries out to him, and yet, typically we read about all these passages where God makes our paths straight. And yet here, it says that he makes them crooked. Third, we see the terrifying predator. Look at verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. David was delivered from the lion. He was delivered from the bear. Here God has become the lion. He has become the bear. And he has tore the poet to pieces. Of course, this is referring to his city. It is destroyed. It is lying in ruins. And last, we have the deadly hunter. Look at verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target For his arrow, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. God put his bow in the sky for Noah and his family to say, I will never again flood the earth and destroy the earth the way that I did here. Now God's bow has pierced the poet's body. That's what happened to Jerusalem. It was pierced. There was a battle and it fell. And now he's bitter, he's raw, he's full of despair. These are the moments in our lives, maybe we don't use the same words, but these are the moments in our lives where we say, where are you, God? I don't get it. Today, maybe you're there, but today it just seems like you're just mean. It seems like you're absent. It seems like you just don't listen. You can't hear me. Jeremiah describes himself as the man in this chapter. What man? It's the average person who experienced the pain of this terrible season of life. This man was, let's just recap, he was brought into darkness, broken, walled up, chained, blocked, torn to pieces, and pierced with arrows. The vicious shepherd and the cruel jailer, the terrifying predator, the deadly hunter, God brought affliction under the rod of his wrath. This is not the God we hear about in Sunday school. And yet it's the God of Scripture. And I want to pause here and share two things about this difficult side of God's judgment, which is an aspect of his holiness. First, we can say specifically that God poured out judgment on Israel by sending Babylon as the rod of his wrath because this is the revelation of the word of God itself. This is what the prophets were saying all along. But we should never say that when suffering comes to another person, or to another nation today, that God's judgment has fallen on them because of sin. Let's not be so presumptuous in our thinking as though they've done something so horrible and we have not at all. We don't always know what God is up to. God is working out his plan of redemption in a fallen world that is under the curse of sin. All the while, cosmic powers of evil are waging war against him. Of course, this means trouble for human beings. And the truth is, we are all deserving of his judgment. Not a very popular message today. Maybe you want to stand up and say, okay, 
enough's enough. I'm throwing in the towel. I'll walk out into the sunshine again. Stick with me, friends. It's worth it. We know that according to the word of God, we have all sinned. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All of creation is groaning in pain. So when somebody or some place is suffering, instead of looking upon them with judgment and contempt, we should go to them with compassion and empathy. And we should say, I'm so sorry for what you're experiencing. Let me take you to the word of God, which can bring you hope, as we'll see here in a few moments. Second, we also know from Scripture that God uh, will judge, and when he does, it will come with finality and great force like it did with the flood. We know it's just a matter of time before God's words will come off the pages of Scripture and pour into the reality of the world. And the point is that God motivates our trust. He brings us to a place of repentance, and he does so through a lot of different means. Sometimes he convicts our souls and brings us to that place of repentance and faith through grace. Sometimes it's with the concept of eternal life. Sometimes it's the idea of shalom, peace and health, and prosperity eternally with him. But judgment is also one of those means. I have a lot of motivation to be a good citizen and not break the law. And one of those motivations is because I don't want to be in jail. And that's okay. That's a good reason. There's nothing wrong with that reason. So when we read about the judgment of God, which is God's holiness in action, we should tremble. We shouldn't look back and say, oh man, here it is again. Here's a sermon talking about God's judgment. Well, his judgment is real. It is a real part of his character. And there is no gospel good news without the judgment of God. We're being rescued from something. From the sin that we have all been devastated by. It's made us all destitute. We all come to the cross the same way. And so, yes, there is judgment, but yes, there is gospel. Yes, there is good news. So judgment, when we come to passages like this, let it hit you hard because it's our reality like it was his. We should repent of our passivity of not being more passionate ambassadors to people who right now are under the judgment of God because they are apart from Christ through faith. And we should pour out praise to Christ our Savior for rescuing us from God's wrath. Now back to the poem. We're getting to the end of that rope. Look at verse 14. We're almost there. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seeded me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made, my, made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. What an image. His resources are gone. Nothing brings relief. This is the place where people talk to him about their joy, about their happiness, and he totally serious says, what is that? I don't even know what that is anymore. I don't know what that feels like. It's been so long since I've been in that place. And in that place, he says, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. And there it is. That's the bottom of the valley. That's the end of the rope. 
If there is a God, he must be mean because I have no hope left. We've reached the bottom of Lamentations Valley. Except right there at the bottom, the prophet, the poet, he made a mistake. If his goal was to give up, toss in the towel and say he was done with this so-called covenant-keeping God, then he made a mistake because in verse 18, look at the text, for the first time in the chapter, he uses the covenant name of God, the Lord. He calls on the Lord. And this name, Yahweh, the sacred name of God, has life and has power. And he calls upon this Lord. The truth is, our lack of hope in the Lord does not change the Lord, who lacks nothing. God is still God, regardless of who we think him to be. And so what happens here is Jeremiah comes to the end and he says, I've got no hope left in myself. I'm empty. I'm beyond spent. I've got nothing here. And then he calls on the name of the Lord. And the Lord is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And now we start to see the turn. We start to see the shift. When we shift our perspective from our pain to the person, his person, things begin to change. Say to the person next to you, because I think they might need to hear it, it's time to make the turn. It's time to make the turn. It's time to make the turn. Say it with some conviction. It's time to make the turn. Like you've been in that valley long enough. You've been in that place long enough. I know there's been sorrow. I know some of you out here, it hasn't all been roses and sunshine and rainbows the last year. So just say to them, it's time to make the turn. We can make the turn. It's time to come out of this valley. How do we do it? How do we walk the road from lament to hope? We start by acknowledging our affliction, then we shift our perspective by remembering his person. God is still God. So now look at verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, a reference again to his bitter situation, and, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is how Jeremiah made the turn. He didn't deny his sufferings. He didn't ignore his confusion. He recognized his own wanderings. He mourns his own sin, and as a result, he bows low in humility to the Lord. If you buy into an everything-should-always-be-awesome culture, you will be incapable of bowing low. When life is awesome, it's easy to say, it's great. God loves me and I love him. But when actual life hits, then it's also easy to say, where's God? What's the point? I don't need him. When our soul is bowed low as we recognize our wandering, our sin, then in that place we are able to do the one thing that will bring us out of the valley of self-pity and sorrow. Look at verse 21, but this I call to mind. Literally, the expression means this I bring back to my heart. He's going to bring something back to his heart, and therefore, as he brings it back to his heart, he will have hope. Even while his emotions are raging, he is battling to let another thought 
captivate his soul other than the one of his pain and sorrow. And that's what we have to do. We have to fight and battle and scratch and claw until we allow another thought to take hold of our soul instead of the one that we've been holding on to. And what is the thought? What is the thought after all these chapters and all these words and all this lament? What is that thing that can get us out? Look at verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the love of God. It's the love of Yahweh. It's the love of our covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is still God. In the midst of the devastation, Jeremiah brings back to his heart the idea of God's steadfast love. Church, you need to hear, friends, you need to hear, brother and sister, you need to hear that right now, in the midst of your pain, if that's what you're going through, you are covered by the steadfast love of the Lord, and that has not changed at all. It is on you. It is over you. Friends, it is inside of you. It surrounds you. And in those moments of our raw emotion, when we say, where are you? He's not gone anywhere because he's still the Lord. Therefore, I have He's pulling on a very famous passage, probably one of the most profound statements of God's character that he would have had in the Old Testament at that time. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6. Moses, as he is interacting with the Lord, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the guilty, the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What is he saying here? Even in the valley, pulling on this passage in Lamentations 3, even in the valley, the Lord is merciful. Even in the valley, the Lord God is gracious. Even in the valley, he is slow to anger. And in this specific context, he was like 800 years slow to anger. His love endures when you don't think it will. He is faithful even when you're not. He is the promise keeper. He's the forgiver. He is righteous. He is good. He is just. And the Lord might deal with the sin of his people to the third and fourth generation, but his steadfast love endures through thousands of generations. Do you see? Do you see it? That in this place of brokenness, Lament allows us to hope. The poet goes on from, he moves from this place of no hope from the Lord to therefore I will hope in him in three sentences. It happened in three sentences. What happened in between? Nothing changed the circumstances. Jerusalem is still in ruin. 
All the horrible things that he's witnessed are still true. So what changed? Nothing around him changed. But in the midst of all the affliction, he remembered that God alone was his portion. That God alone is where he finds his sustenance. When we come to the end of our rope, when every resource has been spent, happiness and hope are only found when we confess the Lord is my portion. There's a story of a man in Rwanda following the genocide in 1994. He was found destitute along the roadside. He had lost everything. He'd lost his family. They'd been killed. He lost his home. He was a follower of Jesus. And he said something unforgettable. He said, I never knew Jesus was all I needed till Jesus was all I had. I never knew Jesus was all I needed till Jesus is all I had. I wonder if the reason why we don't fully embrace that reality is because we find our portions in many other places. We go eating at a lot of other tables. Is he your portion? If you strip it all away, all the material things, all the physical things, the health, the finances, the cars, the house, you take it all away, he's still your portion. Is that enough for you? Jesus is our portion. Can you say that and stake your life on it? There are so many people in our culture who are gone now from the church. It's been a very hard thing to watch as a pastor across all of our campuses. And it's not just Woodside, it's truly around the culture, it's around the world. One thing that COVID took away were consumeristic Christians. Not disciples of Jesus, but people who sipped, just sipped from the cup of the gospel, but they were drunk on the world. And they're gone. And when they get to the end of their rope, the Lord is not the portion they go to. He's not the table they run to. Believing that the Lord is your portion, your sustenance, all you need, begins with believing that Jesus has provided everything your soul needs, even in the midst of affliction. He has never wandered. He never sinned. He, but, but even though he was perfect, he drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Did you know he felt the rod of wrath at the hand of the vicious shepherd? Did you know that the jailer fastened him to a cross and he could not escape? Did you know that the predator tore his back to shreds? Did you know that the skilled hunter, the deadly hunter, pierced him through his hands, feet, and side? Do you know that Jesus took our transgressions, our iniquities, and our sins? He paid the price to set you free. Do you know? Do you know him? He's the only one who can give you steadfast love. His love is the only thing that can move us from lament to hope. Jesus is my portion. Therefore, I will have hope. Make that your prayer today.
See, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. When we think about Jesus, we can know this is true because all we have to do is look at his life. I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. You know it. You might remember the verse where it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before him, he endured affliction. And so we know beyond just hope, it's a sure thing. As sure as the, as the tomb is empty, as sure as he died and resurrected, as sure as he ascended to heaven, we can be sure that even though we walk through affliction, just like our Savior did, just like he said we would, at the end, there is life. Because the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And so right now, we're walking through that beginning called life. And although we might not to think, like to think about it that way, the truth is, life is like this long, slow, downward spiral for human beings in this stage. I mean, it would be wonderful if my body just kept getting stronger and faster, and I got better looking as the years went by. But it's just this long, slow decline. And eventually, weddings and births give way to funerals and deaths. But I shall hope in the Lord. He is my portion. And I believe that better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Bring your hurts to him and he'll bring hope to you. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this lament. We don't get to many passages of Scripture, Father, that are harder to read and harder to hear than these. And yet, Father, we come to you knowing that you are indeed the Lord, mighty and strong, faithful and true, and your covenantal promises will remain. They always have remained, and they will be carried out because you said so. And so, Father, I pray for any here who have been pierced by your spirit today. And they sense and they know that there's distance between them and you. And it's not just because they're going through affliction. It's because Jesus has not become their portion. I pray that in these moments of reflection, that they would cry out to you in the midst of their valley and just say, Jesus... Jesus, you're all I need. Forgive me of my sin. You are the Lord. You have good things in store. You will take even the worst of situations, even this moment of my life, and you will turn it, and I will make the turn and see your glory. Bring me into your family. Father, when we're in the midst of that valley and we've made that long journey, it's exhausting. We're spent. We're at the end of our rope. We don't have any more energy. We don't have anything left in our spirit. We have no more words to say. In that place, let us say, let us maybe not even speak the word, but just know your steadfast love endures forever. Your mercies are new every day. You are our portion. Therefore, we have hope. 
do your work in us, Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.